Hello and welcome to the She-Hulk Attorney at Law Prepisode, also known as Episode 75 of Sensational She-Geek Live from Yancey Street. Where among the content on this week's double episode, since we did take last week off, I am going to be finishing off the episode with a preparatory discussion for the Disney Plus show She-Hulk Attorney at Law, which is starting this Thursday the 18th, and again, that will be on Disney Plus. Obviously, I'm quite excited for that, and you can also find by the end of this week a special edition podcast episode that's going to be focusing entirely on Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk. It's probably going to be at least two hours because she is a very, very well-used character in the comics. So her history is quite expansive, and for this particular character of Jennifer Walters' She-Hulk, she has some very interesting details that are definitely worth exploring, and I have been doing so through my studying of her character the past couple of months preparing for that podcast special, so I am very excited to share that with you this week um, after the premiere episode of Attorney at Law on Thursday. So definitely keep an eye out for that. But we will be discussing prep for the show on this episode. Things that we're going to expect, things that we're still wondering, things that we do, well, are pretty sure that we're confident that we know. And just some general excitement about the fact that we're getting a She-Hulk show. Um, all things considered, that's a fantastic place to land in the world today. So, of course, we will be starting with the regular news, in which I have included a Nichelle Nichols tribute, um, as well as general discussion of the Warner Discovery mess that has been put out by them, and announcements and things, and try to cover everything that's been given any kind of update by that party. And then, of course, some leaks, some news, some rumors, uh, just some general fun stuff in the news. For the comic book picks this week, we are actually covering two weeks of comic picks. These are from the week of the 3rd and the 10th of August. Um, there is a lot here that I'm really excited to talk about. There's a lot of really good stuff, uh, particularly a lot of really fantastic indie comics. So that's super exciting to be able to discuss that this week. And the comic book polls are going to be things coming out this week, the 17th of August. August. Um, there's, again, a good number of number ones. We seem to be really killing it with the indie comics these days. I, again, I know I've said it before, but we are in a golden era of specifically indie comic book publishing, and I am adoring it. So there's tons of indie stuff that's coming out this week, as well as some good old classics like New Mutants and Captain Marvel. We will be going over the two episodes of Harley Quinn, the animated show that I have missed so far. It's going to be episodes three and four. They are going to be talked about pretty briefly, because again, my most exciting thing on this episode, in my opinion, uh, is the She-Hulk prep. Um, I, it's going to be streaming on Thursday starting this week, and we're going to be going through what we know, what we don't know, and what we're still wondering. Um, characters who may or may not be showing up based on rumors, based on theories, um, actors who don't have disclosed roles yet, why are they keeping those secret, things like that. I'm just very excited to go over all of that, and of course, the stuff that we actually do know will be happening and showing up in the show. So that's how we will wrap up this week's uh, a little bit of a plus episode. We'll call it 75 plus since we skipped last week. 
Real quick here before we get started, please feel free to join the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description. The Discord is a safe, friendly place for socialization and discussion of whatever you want, really, comics, pop culture, or otherwise. And it's also where you can go to find links or images mentioned during the podcast all in one place. You can find me most easily on social media via Instagram. My username is at Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and hey, I've got a lot of comics. Uh, my podcast updates, if you want to find those, they'll be mostly on Twitter, where my username is at Savage she Geek because Sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, where I have been working on fixing up the site quite a bit so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast, so make sure you go and check that out, including my beginner's guide to both comics and manga, covering hopefully any information that you might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga, including recommendations on comics, graphic novels, manga, series, etc. Uh, I also have my reading orders with commentary on appearances of various leading ladies, many of which I use to turn into the monthly Yancey Street specials, also linked all over my site, uh, and they focus on a so far female character from the comics to study thoroughly and then expand upon in a podcast episode of their own. I try to make them pretty relevant. For example, I'm about 95% done with a Jennifer Walters She-Hulk episode, which is going to be coming out uh, for her show this August. Additionally, anything pre-2021 content-wise can be found written in the website blog for your reference, which was all before I started the podcast. Plus my podcast notes, which are basically all the content of each episode in written format, are made available on my blog as well for reading the podcast instead of listening and for those who are hearing impaired if they'd like to keep up with the podcast events as well. And you can finally find links to anywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which is most, if not all, podcast hosting apps, and also includes YouTube. On YouTube, I also post the podcast episodes in a single playlist format, if that is easier way for you to listen. And I also occasionally post action figure review videos. It has been a lot more imports in the latest videos, as I have pretty much given up on Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, uh, but I do have a big backlog of Legends videos, including a tour of our entire collection. It's a very long video tour. And soon the HasLab Galactus, assuming that he is on his way to go alongside last year's HasLab Sentinel video. I do have a podcast Patreon. You can find it under Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast, as well as a Kofi, which is like a buy a creator a coffee situation. And Cash App, Venmo, PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donation towards the podcast, which should appear linked among various other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, I do also have a Redbubble shop called She Geek Shop, but I have been having some issues with their site and whatnot. Um, so I'm working on setting up my own storefront on my site, which hopefully will be coming by the new year and will be faster with more support from listeners. Our new segment is pretty packed this week. We are going to start off by discussing Michelle Nichols and her legendary career. Um, we're also going to cover a few things that I have watched recently and thought was pretty cool and talk about those. Um, it's Moonhaven, Day Shift, things like that. We have an announcement from Heavy Metal Comics, uh, some Doctor Who news, leaks of Ironheart and Quantumania, and the rumors about some Netflix Marvel, well, I should say formerly Netflix Marvel projects before we wrap up the news with that DC. Warner 
uh, cluster, we'll just say. <laughs> to speak on Nichelle Nichols and her impact on the sci-fi and film and TV community is... Um, it's imposing, to be honest, because I know that no matter how much I can do here, I will not fully be able to capture in my own words uh, her effect on such communities and beyond, really. Nichols left this world on July 30th, 2022, leaving the Star Trek and sci-fi communities a bit speechless. Actually, that's incredibly not true. They have wonderful words to say about Nichelle Nichols, as all of us should. So I'm going to go through a couple of these things here and see what some people have to say. One of my favorite things um, about Nichelle Nichols, I mean, I think one of her most famous, um, most famous influences that she's had on any community was that she was a uh, legendary new kind of character for Black women and black people really in general in sci-fi she was her own character she had her own role she wasn't it wasn't focused on the fact that she was a black woman um and to add to that of course we all know that she and um kirk of course shared the first interracial on-screen kiss which is kind of insane to think about these day and age but that was Something that had never happened. I mean, I think people forget that interracial marriage was literally illegal in Alabama until the year 2001. These things are still very modern history. And that's why it's important to discuss people like Nichelle Nichols. To add to her legacy for the communities of color, there is an interview with Starlog magazine from 1990, um, and also I think it was elaborated on a few years later, uh, where she speaks on how she wanted to leave the role of Uhura, wanted to leave Star Trek entirely after the first few seasons of the show. And it says here... Um, Again, this interview was from 1990. She says, Martin Luther King asked me not to leave. He said, my role of Uhura was important because it was a major role played by a black that was not specifically designed for a black or a female. He said Uhura was not a small character, that I was 10 feet tall and that I was opening many doors. I had no intention of leaving the show after he said that, but I've got to be honest with you, I still look back on that decision with mixed emotions. Of course, we have to understand that there could not possibly be only good things coming out of the show for Nichelle Nichols. She was a trailblazer, and with that, there comes always an amount of hardship. And being a black female trailblazer in Hollywood, you can imagine that was quite a bit of BS that she had to put up with being the character of Uhura. Now, Nichelle Nichols goes on in an interview with Starlog magazine later, elaborating on that conversation with Martin Luther King. She says, King told me, you've opened a door that can never be closed again. You've changed the face of television. That is no small achievement, and I am very, very proud. She adds, I don't want anybody being colorblind when they look at me. I resent somebody saying, oh, I don't mind that she's black. I'm colorblind. Well, wake up, fella, and smell the roses. I like being who I am, and I'll be damned if I want if I want you accepting me in spite of the fact that I'm a woman, that I'm black, and I'm whoever I am. Deal with me and appreciate and accept me for what I am. Not only is that something relatable to, I feel, uh, the entire people of color community, but also women. <laughs> That's something, again, you cannot be a trailblazer without having to fight some battles. And she certainly did um, blaze some trails. I, she 
She continued to play Uhura through whatever hardships that she was facing as a black woman actress in Hollywood in this new and kind of untried role for her. Of course, with her passing, there are a lot of people coming out of the woodwork saying various things, all positive about her and her legacy. Um, I have a number of articles that are going to be linked in the description of this episode. One is by George Taike, um, who, of course, is a lifelong friend and co-worker with Nichelle Nichols. Uh, Zoe Saldana is another one. She, of course, is Uhura from the modern Star Trek movies. Uh, there is a clip, a clip, a a bit from NASA here, and also the official Star Trek website. I would like to read what the NASA administrator Bill Nelson remembers about Nichols in his little statement here. He says, "Nichelle Nichols was a trailblazing actress, advocate, and dear friend to NASA. At a time when black women were seldom seen on screen, Nichelle." Nichelle's portrayal as Nyota Uhura and on Star Trek held a mirror up to America that strengthened civil rights. Nichelle's advocacy transcended television and transferred transform NASA. After Apollo 11, Nichelle made it her mission to inspire women and people of color to join this agency, change the face of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and explore the cosmos. Nichelle's mission is NASA's mission. Today, as we work to send the first woman and first people of color to the moon under Artemis, NASA is guided by the legacy of Nichelle Nichols. And I do believe that they had an article sometime around when Uh, Star Trek was premiering and her character was premiering that NASA, uh, they identified Nichelle Nichols as the first black female astronaut. Getting women um, and people of color into STEM programs, again, STEM is science, technology, engineering, and math, is something that is very, very near and dear to my heart because I was raised partially by an engineer and uh, went through years of robotics classes and clubs in junior high school and high school ages where women in those groups or girls were a extreme minority. Um, and I was able to kind of watch the program shift over those years to where there was maybe a handful of us and at the time, by the time I graduated, almost half the team was women. Um, and that is something that is a it's such a satisfying feeling and Nichelle Nichols that was a massive part of her career goal she she recruited or she helped NASA recruit women and people of color to be astronauts which is a huge deal for those industries big firsts representation doesn't just count for Hollywood it counts for doctors scientists mathematicians It is something that I am very passionate about, even though I am not particularly in those programs myself these days. Um, But that is a large reason of why I love and respect Nichelle Nichols, and always will. She was leagues and bounds ahead of her time in more than just being an actress, but in being a social, almost political movement of a person. I will also never forget how excited she was to appear on the show Comic Book Men. Um, it had been a long time since she had done any very openly public appearances, and she appeared on Comic Book Men looking for one of the original action figures of her character, of course, Nyoto Uhura from Star Trek. Um, and I just remember they were beyond delighted to see her. Of course, many of the men in the comic book shop in question had... I'm sure crushes on her when the show was originally premiering, as many people did, uh, for good reason. And just seeing her go into the shop and really 
talk to them about her role, talk to them about how fun it was and how everything has changed in her life since then and what she's done and been up to. Um, she really thoroughly enjoyed, and I, this is not the only, this is just one observation that I made. I, there have been so many fans and co-workers of hers who have come out and, and confirmed that she really genuinely did enjoy interacting with people who loved her character of Uhura, who loved Star Trek. So I feel like it's safe to say that Star Trek and Uhura um, definitely held a very special place in her heart, and I will I will for sure miss seeing those clips of her enjoying that, um, but I hope that she will be remembered for the fantastic woman that she was. Moving into things that are a little bit less sad, um, this week had, or the past two weeks, had the Moonhaven finale, uh, Day Shift premiered on Netflix, and I Am Group premiered on Disney+. Plus. So first off, Day Shift, absolutely hilarious. It is a vampire hunting movie, so if you do not like blood, guts, and gore, I will not recommend that to you whatsoever, because there is a lot of that. Um, but it, the funny thing about this is it stars Jamie Foxx, Snoop Dogg, and James Franco. And it's James Franco doing what James Franco does best in being, like, the really attractive idiot. <laughs> um, absolutely hilarious. I definitely recommend that if you're into... It's, I wouldn't really call it a horror movie. Um, it definitely has some crazy stuff that happens, but it is a lot of fun. I Am Group premiered Wednesday the 10th. That was a full week ago almost at this point on Disney+. Plus. All of the episodes in the first collection are now streaming and available for your viewership. Um, if you would like to know what the episodes are about before you watch or instead of watching the direct to put out an article of basically spoiling all of the episodes. Not sure why, but they did. Uh, so that is there in the description below if you would like to check out what the episodes were about without actually reading them. Or sorry, watching them. <laughs> the Moonhaven finale was really exciting. Uh, this is one of those shows that has kind of put out six episodes. It's like a tester season uh, to see how it's kind of accepted, and then they're going to come back with more in a second season, hopefully pretty soon here. Um, the show was very interesting. The, the general plot of it is, you know, post-apocalyptic, not post-apocalyptic, but basically near-apocalyptic Earth. Um, they, a hundred years ago, sent some people up to the moon where they created a haven on the moon, as you may have guessed based on the title, um, to kind of create a utopia, solve the problems of Earth away from Earth, and then they will then bring their utopia down to Earth and teach Earth how to be a utopia with their science and things that they've come up with. It does sound a little bit lofty, but it is cool. Um, there's a lot of exploration of themes like community and family and um, working together and things like that that is explored. The differences between the Moonhaven community and that which you would find on Earth. Um, very, very cool concepts, especially when you start bringing in the like the technology stuff where they're on a spot of the moon that has just kind of been terraformed, and the rest of the moon is just the moon. It's just this one little spot. So you get close to the edges of that one little spot, and you can see, like, oh, the sky gets really dark because the atmosphere is fading, and you're now kind of like, oh, the ground is turning into moon. It's, ugh, I can't even describe it properly. It's super cool. Um, really, really awesome sci-fi show. But anyway, um, I do have an article below about the season two that will be coming, uh, but I did pick out some stuff from the article. Um, I believe this is all from the 
production designer, Philip Murphy, um, talking about the show. He said, we went off and we did a bit of research and I found in Chinese culture from the 13th century, they had moon gates. And this is him talking about this concept of uh, this technology to look through kind of... Um, uh, memories of a sort that they have in Moonhaven. So he says the Chinese, they had moon gates in the 13th century, which are essentially holes in walls or round windows that have views out onto the world or that leads you in a path that asks you to adjust what you're seeing because you're going into somewhere beautiful. That design left China in about the 15th century and ended up going all the way to South Africa, where they cropped up there in another format. And now you see them all over the world in and modern sculpture. So that was their concept that they took from um, from there. Um, speaking on the show a bit, it says there's the revelation of the literal family tree that once stood in the fringe land, um, which is the edges of things, but is now a much more integral part of how these mooners see themselves. It's one of the last examples of the show's ability to introduce an unfamiliar concept concept, and have both Bella, the main character, and the viewing audience of The Outsiders recognize the significance right away. The potential unraveling of the family system, built on every family raising other adopted children from the community as their own, holds the weight it does because of those scenes like those around Paul Sarno's dining table. The, that uncertainty sets the stage for the still mysterious Io, their technology to become a more visible element of the show moving forward. Between the strife on the moon and the new dynamic of those first waivers arriving safely at their Earth destination, the show's renewal offers a chance to fill out even more of the series' scope. So it has been removed. We are getting season two. Um, season one was kind of like an intro to where the world is at this point um, and how society is. And then season two, I guess, is going to be um, kind of expanding the story. Uh, that production designer, Phil Mur Philip Murphy, comes back to add, we don't want to just pick up the story exactly where it left off. I want to feel that we're in season, that when we're in season two, we're with our characters we love, but this is a new chapter. Thematically, the problems haven't changed. We've got a team that's gone back to Earth and is now marooned, but they have with them Io's technology. It's not about a bunch of softies who are going, who are now going to get overrun by the walking dead. It's a group of technology, technologically advanced humans who have come back and are still intent on pursuing that goal of making things better. The show is not cynical. I'm not cynical. I think it's really important that we don't let go of, hey, we are not a people, we are a purpose. That, to me, is the most important thing that we're doing. You may have picked it up with the discussion of the family trees a little bit, but a big concept that's explored in Moonhaven is community, as I kind of mentioned before. And the way that they they really make their community a strong, firm standing thing is um, everybody, you don't raise your own children. You, if you have a child, you, you know, you have the child and it goes off with some other family to raise them and you never see them again necessarily. Um, and that is how they kind of solidify the idea of, as the production designer said here, we are not a people, we are a purpose. We are not a people who can be split into different groups and sects and rivalry clubs, basically. We are a purpose of the survival of the race, the continuation of the community, and the betterment of the future of humanity. And to do that, they abandon the concept of uh, hierarchy in a little bit, and also of 
traditional family structure. I just think it's a very interesting concept that they are messing around with, and I am thoroughly excited to see what happens in season two. Heavy Metal Comics is a comic book publisher who has been around for a good while, and recently, specifically, I believe it was actually at Comic-Con, they did. They had a little bit of a production slate announcement. Uh, they are a long-running science fiction, fantasy, and horror publication, and they have announced the Metalverse, which is their honestly ambitious slate of live action and animated uh, shows and movies that are going to be coming out in the next few years. Heavy Metal's president and head of studio, Tommy Coriel, says, Just as Heavy Metal magazine changed the way the world looked at comic books and how the 81 animated film Heavy Metal changed animation forever, Heavy Metal Studios is about to take the reins on live-action content and push it far past its current stagnation and into new heights. Things will never be the same again. Again. It looks like they are going to be doing projects on Stephanie Phillips' Tarna, George C. Romero's Cold Dead War, Matthew Medney's Darkwing, Blake Northcott's Arena Mode, Medney and Bruce Edwards' The Adventures of Adrian James, Dylan Sprouse and Joe Harris's Sun Eater, and Brendan Columbus's Savage Circus. The upcoming heavy metal animated television series is called Moon Lake, and it is created by uh, award-winning actor and writer Dan Fogler, based on his anthology graphic novel series. I genuinely know nothing about that. What I do know about heavy metal is I know Tarna. Tarna is a cool character. Stephanie Phillips uh, has the most recent series with her, which I recommend you checking out if you like crazy sci-fi stuff. Um, This is all very much in the vein of... Uh, 80s and 90s hard rock and things. So, um, like a lot of Dynamite comics, um, and like Coffin Comics, two other publishers uh, who have similar reputations, the content is not necessarily always the best. It's the cool, badass stuff that you get out of heavy metal is, is why people go back to it. Um... Like, like I said, they are a science fiction, fantasy, and horror publication, so they have some really interesting themes. Um, hopefully, they just get them done well here, because, uh, yes, they do uh, tend to be a little bit cheesy, but, you know, it could be really fun, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. In the world of Doctor Who, uh, the 14th Doctor, Nkuti, I'm sorry, I probably said that wrong, it's probably Nkuti Gatwa, he is going to start filming for his Doctor in November, and that is expected to not air until 2024 for some reason. Um, There is a Hollywood Reporter article that I have linked in the description below, and then I also want to add um, a quote from that article saying, recent comments by Neil Patrick Harris, also appearing in the special, which has now been shot, have led to speculation that Gatwa will appear in 2023's Celebrations, a move that could see Tennant's incarnation of the Doctor regenerate into Gatwa's. However, details about the special, as with most things Doctor Who, are being kept tightly under wraps at the BBC. Now, this is something that I wanted to add, because currently, of course, the Doctor that we have right now is 13th Doctor, who is not David Tennant's Doctor. Um... It is uh, Jodie Whittaker, the first female Doctor that we've uh, had officially in the show. Um, 
so so what they're talking about the cel- the 2023 celebrations it's the Doctor Who anniversary or it was crossed over with the BBC anniversary something like that um and so I guess they brought in Neil Patrick Harris as uh, a villain and they brought in David Tennant um and people are trying to speculate a little bit because previously they were thinking that um, Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor is going to change into the 14th in this special, but then we found out that David Tennant is going to be in the special, and so is Neil Patrick Harris, which is a whole other thing. I think it's going to be great. Um, and so the concern that people kind of have right now is, yes, is it possible that it's going to be actually David Tennant's Doctor who's going to regenerate into Gatwa's and not Jodie Whittaker's. A lot of people feel like this is going to, if, if they do choose to do that, should they? Um, it's very unfair to Whittaker um, and her Doctor kind of just writing her out like that, which I totally understand. Um, but again, this is all just speculation. There is very little that's actually known. Um I also think Catherine Tate is back for the 2023 celebrations. And again, that has been entirely filmed. And if um, Inkutsugawa is not starting until November, potentially it's not being filmed to tag on to that celebration special. So with any luck, um, we will not be seeing Inkutsugawa. Of course, we want to see him, but uh, we will not be seeing him in the celebration necessarily. Uh, but at some point in the next year. Um, hopefully seeing if it is going to be Jodie Whittaker's doctor transforming into him, um, then hopefully we'll be seeing that in Jodie Whittaker's own episode um, that she can have her proper goodbye in. Getting into some MCU leaks, we have leaks from Ironheart and Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania. For Quantumania, uh, it's actually pretty fun, in my opinion. It's not a hundred percent certain that this was a real leak. I would say it's about ninety-eight percent certain. So it's 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 pretty sure, but not positive. Um, and the leak in this one was that we are we we already spoke about it in the past. How um, Yellow Jacket is actually going to be becoming Modok, who is the dude with the big head in the floaty chair with tiny little arms and legs. He's basically just a big head. Um, that's the best way I know to describe him. <laughs> um, Yellow Jacket will be turning into Modok. Uh, Yellow Jacket was the villain of the first two movies, or at least the first one. Um, he was pretty cool. He did a fantastic job, and I guess something is going to happen here, and he's going to be turning into Modok. The art that was leaked for this, which was in the Yancey Street Discord, if you'd like to check that out, um, is basically like a, if you could imagine Modok as in take like an Iron Man take on Modok, um, with kind of the yellow jacket, black and gold colors. That's pretty much what his Modok looks like based on this concept art. Um, it does have a massive face mask, which is why people are comparing it to Iron Man. Um, and that kind of makes sense because that's the technology of the MCU and that's how it kind of looks. What I'm really hoping is that people absolutely piss themselves excuse me for that, but they do, um, when he takes his mask off. Because again, this is a live action movie and we've only ever really seen Modok in animation because, I mean, he's a giant head in a chair with arms and legs poking out of him. Like, tiny little, like, it, it, it's a very weird looking thing. Um, I make my husband hide his action figure of Modok where I can't see it. So there you go. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm really hoping that the mask will come off of MODOK, this yellow jacket MODOK in Quantumania, and people's skin crawls. <laughs> I really, really want to see his messed up head. Um, people are theorizing that 
it's potentially Yellow Jacket gets stuck in the quantum verse, um, and he just gets physically severely messed up, and that's how he ends up as a giant head with tiny little arms and legs. Um, in any case, uh, if that is the true design or not, I think the, the whole idea of Yellow Jacket becoming Modoc in that movie is brilliant, uh, totally follows that character, the way that they have set him up to be kind of like this crazy tech wannabe guy. Um, so I think that'll work out really, really well. As for Ironheart, there were some leaks of official images, not official, obviously, but some leaked images of the actual uh, costumes for Riri Williams as Ironheart, as well as Parker Robbins as The Hood. Those are their character names. Um, we have also a RuPaul Drag Race star, Shay Coulee, uh, joined Ironheart as well. No idea what role they could be playing. We'll have to wait and find out. But uh, as for Riri's suit, it looks fantastic. I think it looks very much like a uh, Mark I Iron Man suit kind of situation, which makes sense because, again, Stark technology is kind of the the sort of tech that the MCU runs off of. So, um, And Riri's whole thing is that she makes her suit from discarded Stark tech. Um, it does look a little bit like a Gundam also, which is pretty cool. I'm digging that. As for the hood, he looks like the hood. <laughs> His character is Parker Robbins. Um, he wears a red hood. And that's, that. that's, yep, they got it. <laughs> Nailed that one. Um, not sure, again, what the roles of any of these characters are necessarily going to be. We are going to see Riri for the first time in Wakanda Forever this winter. Uh, so definitely check her out in that if you are excited for her show coming, what, next year? The year after? I don't know. Whenever it shows up. I think it's next year. Now, as for the rumors portion of formerly Netflix Marvel, um, I believe it was um, Rosario Dawson was at a convention of some kind being interviewed and apparently let it slip that John Bernthal, who does play the Punisher, might be returning as the Punisher for the She-Hulk show. Um, obviously super exciting. He is one of the ground level superheroes. I guess you could call him an anti-hero is probably better there. Uh, Ground-level hero characters who uh, very much runs with the group of the um, kind of the classic defender, not classic, but like the more modern defenders. Um, the, a lot of the characters who we're seeing, you know, She-Hulk, a lot of these types of characters are very much in his ballpark. So, um, and of course, we've already seen him uh, on his own Netflix show in the past, and we know that Charlie Cox is 100% going to be in all nine episodes of She-Hulk, so it really wouldn't be too much of a stretch to assume that we're going to see Punisher in that show as well, especially assuming that she is starting a, um, starting her attorney career as an attorney for super clients of any kind, so he would definitely fit that bill for that for sure. Now, finally, we do have to mention the, uh, the, the Warner Discovery situation, and this kind of started uh, with the cancellation of Batgirl. Um, there have been statements from the actress as well as the directors. The directors, by the way, are the people, the, the gentlemen who directed the final episodes of Ms. Marvel as well. Um, so it's really uh, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Fala are their names. Um, it's really hard to not write that off as a, 
uh, racial cancellation, uh, especially when you see that the whole reason this stuff is all happening, uh, all these cancellations and whatnot, HBO Max being reduced by 70%. Uh, you know, CW was sold off almost entirely yesterday. Um, why is all this happening? Well, it's because the new guy in charge after this Warren Discovery merger um, is, I'm just going to go ahead and just be real with you guys, he is an old white man. Um, and so he decided that he was going to create this team of folks who are going to come into his new Warren Discovery merger thingy and decide what shows and programs and whatnot uh, are worth keeping and what and what should be moved on from and so he brought in all of his best buddies who are also straight white men who are very old and uh they basically decided that batgirl wasn't worth it because they didn't think the character was relatable why would old straight white men find batgirl relatable i don't know um not for you <laughs> she's not for you <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that's why this is all happening. In short, um, I wish I was making that up, but that is 100% what is happening here is this old white guy at Warner Discovery uh, fired 70% uh, of the HBO Max team. <laughs> Not even making that one up either. I've got articles below if you'd like to fact check me. Uh, he fired 70% of the HBO Max team. They're going to be going more into the direction of unscripted shows instead of scripted. And if you don't know what that means, they're going to reality TV. Unscripted shows are reality TV and competition shows and things like that, even though they are partially scripted, so you can't really call them unscripted. Um, Many, many projects are in question. Let's see um, if I can kind of figure... Let's see. Starting off with um, the Batman, right? So we know we're supposed to be having a sequel to the Batman. While the director is still working on it, um, according to himself, it is unconfirmed if it is still going to have a future. So that one's very much in limbo. Um, things that are going to be canceled almost certainly um, are any HBO Max shows that were DC related. And that does include the Harley Quinn show, that does include Titans, and that does include Young Justice. They have not been officially canceled, but they are all on deck expected to be canceled. The one thing that we know might actually have survived is the Green Lantern show. Um, it's not, I don't think anything is really 100% confirmed about that one, but um, it has not been officially canceled. There were rumors that it was canceled. Um, and then recently, I think the creators came out and were like, no, we're still working on it. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we will be still getting that one. There was one that wasn't even particularly announced yet. Kevin Smith was going to be in charge of a Strange Adventures series that was going to be loosely based on the Tom King, um, Adam Strange, Strange Adventures series that came out uh, just, I think, in the past year or so. Um, it was going to be an anthology series and that wasn't even officially announced yet, but that has officially been canceled now. Um, it seems pretty much that anything that is not a number one project in the minds of financial holders has been canceled. And in the terms of Batgirl, it doesn't make any sense financially anyway. Again, I have an article from IGN linked below that explains why they're not actually saving money by doing that. I know people are trying to say, oh, well, they're actually saving money. They've already spent $90 million, but by getting the tax refund back, they don't have to spend another 90 to get it marketed and stuff. Well, please check out this article because they they go into that a lot better than I can. Um, and it's another reason why I am 
pretty much convinced that this was a racial cancellation. Uh, the future of the Blue Beetle movie, again, a little bit in flux because that was one that was going to be on HBO Max originally, and they moved it to theaters. That's just like what they've done with the Batgirl show, but it has yet to be canceled. Hopefully it will not be canceled because Batgirl starred a Latina, and guess who stars in uh, Blue Beetle? A, lot, a Latinx boy. So... Yeah, hopefully that's not a pattern we're going to see continuing, but again, like I explained, this is all happening because it is a bunch of straight white dudes who have now taken over the Warner Discovery merger and really just have a wrong idea about what it is that audiences want to see. To add to that, uh, there's this fun little graphic that I have here, if I can pull it up, um, about what the future of... Warren Discovery is going to be. So they have a they have this really stupid graphic. You can find it on the Yancey Street Discord if you would like to see it yourself. Um, the only franchises from DC that they're apparently going to be focusing on is going to be Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. So um, reducing that quite a bit. Um, and they're they're replacing a lot of stuff with get this ninety day fiance universe the hell is that? What what does that even mean? <sighs> but anyway, uh, things are not good for fans of DC Comics, or DC Comic properties. Now, Warner Discovery having been sold, or having merged, things are kind of potentially in flux for comic books, but we'll have to wait until we get more details on that to really be sure. Um, they've already done so much reduction with DC Comics, hopefully there won't be any more. One final thing that I wanted to add to the news segment of the podcast was about the Sony-verse. Um, uh, Sony's Madam Web, I guess, specifically, is what we're talking about. There are rumors of what the movie is about and who the cast will be. So we're, we're looking at Dakota Johnson. We already knew all these actors would be in here. Dakota Johnson as Cassandra Webb. That is Madam Webb, the original Madam Webb. Sydney Sweeney as Julia Carpenter, who is a Spider-Woman character. Celeste O'Connor as Maddie Franklin, who is, I believe, the granddaughter of Cassandra Webb. Isabella Merced as Anya Corazon, who is Spider-Girl. Adam Scott as Ben Parker, a.k.a. Uncle Ben. And Emma Roberts as Mary Parker, a.k.a. Peter's mother. Little bit odd there. Um, the rumors of what this is actually about are pretty much saying that it's going to be these Spider-Woman characters, Cassandra Webb, Julia Carpenter, Maddie Franklin, Anya Corazon, protecting Emma Roberts' Mary Parker to make sure that Peter Parker will be born. Not sure why Ben has anything to do with anything then, but whatever. Um, people are also speculating that it could possibly be Morlin, uh, who is one of the major Spider-Verse villains, Morlin is the, the leader of the Inheritors, who are this family of people who feed off spider totems. It's a whole thing. We'll get into it if that actually ends up being what this plot is about. But uh, that's kind of the rumor right now, is that somebody is traveling through possibly time and space, possibly time, possibly space, uh, trying to stop Peter Parker from being born, and these folks are trying to prevent that. So um, it's way too early to say if this is like legitimate or a good idea or anything like that, especially since these are strictly rumors still. Um, one thing I can say for sure is there have been a lot of jokes about how uh, Sony's just trying to make a movie with a bunch of hot people, which I get because that's pretty much who they've cast so far. <laughs> we'll see how it goes when we get there. 
our next segment is the comic book picks. These are things that I read and enjoyed from the 3rd and the 10th of August. Um, there's a lot here, but I, I think I'm going to go through the names real quick just so you can pop in and see if there's anything you want to hear me talk about or move on. So we've got Poison Ivy number three, whatever the recent Batman issue was, I forgot to put the number down. Uh, Dark Crisis number three, Multiversity Team Justice number three, Sword of Azrael number one, The Vineyard, The Vineyard number one, Immortal X-Men number five, Demon Wars, Iron Samurai number one, Deceased War of the Undead Gods number one, I don't know why I put two there. Uh, Astronaut Down, number three. There's Something Wrong with Patrick Todd, number two. New Mutants, 27. Parker Girls, number one. The Deadliest Bouquet, number one. Dark Crisis, World Without Justice League, Green Lantern, number one. Whew, that's a mouthful. Judgment Day, number two. And finally, Samurai Doggy, number one. Lots of variety in this. I love variety in my comics. So starting up at the top of that list, which the list is only in order of things that I read it's in the order of what I read. It's not in the order of preference or anything like that. Um, but starting off with Poison Ivy number three, super duper enjoy this one. Um, uh, there's something going on. There's a lot of things going on. <laughs> um, Ivy at one point, you know, she's saying in the last issue how she is disconnected from the green. Yet in this issue, she plants a tree um, that she doesn't really expect much to happen, but it grows full grown overnight, which definitely makes me think that she still has some kind of connection to the green. She just can't feel it or tell that it's still there or she's been too traumatized something like that, that she just can't access it right now, feels like she's disconnected. Um, I also saw a complaint that this is just sad Ivy. Um, to which I guess I kind of have to say, like, that must be nice for you to complain about that. Like, I get this Ivy. She makes sense to me. Um, I don't know if that says anything about me, but this Ivy is someone who has been hurt, who has been pushed around, who has fought for herself and who has now decided for herself what she is going to do. Um, I, I don't know what's so hard to, to understand about that. I mean, I'm I'm not sure again why she got split off from the green, but this 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 Ivy checks out for me. Um, yes, she left Harley and she's sad, but that's a very complicated situation. Do you remember what was happening when she left Harley? There was a lot of complications in there. It was Harley had been working with Batman. Ivy had had been split into two separate entities and then recombined. And apparently, her ex girlfriend had come back into town, who was her first love, and it's just all this stuff like. Of course it's not going to be simple. Like, it's just not how life is. And, it's, and then this is Ivy, and she is... Ivy! I don't know, I just, I get it, and I'm, I, I'm saddened that people don't get it. For the Batman issue, this is Chip Zarsky's second issue of Batman in his current run. Uh, Phil Jimenez, not Phil Jimenez, Jorge Jimenez, <laughs> he's the one who does the art in this issue. Absolutely stupendous. He was made to do Batman art. Uh, in this, in the end of this issue, Penguin's last surviving son and daughter show up after having killed off all of his other spawn so that they would get the money in the will. But then it turns out the money doesn't actually go to his children in the will. It goes to some fundraiser or something like that. So they're all pissed off. And they're probably going to be uh, Batman and or Catwoman's problem now. Dark Crisis number three of, I think, seven or eight. Um, what we find in this one, Gar, he's going to be fine. He's going to live. Uh, Black Adam tries to do boot camp for his new Justice League. This doesn't go very well. Um, he just wants to kill members of Deathstroke's team, basically, who the ones who they can pick up and catch. No one else wants to do that. They're heroes. Uh, so Yara Floor ends up showing up, and she 
really tells him off, which is awesome because she's like the little tiny girl compared to Black Adam. But she tells him off and he leaves. And then the Justice Society arrives. So that's what we're going to see in the next issue is cool Justice Society stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, over there with Deathstroke, Slade's daughter arrives to try and call him off of his weird vendetta thing he's doing, uh, and he ends up shooting a plague into—oh, sorry, out of his mouth, because he's actually working for Pariah and is probably kind of dying. (laughs) Meanwhile, with Pariah, the Green Lanterns are facing off with him. He is the guy who's done all of this. Um, He's turned the members of the Justice League into— like little orbs. Um, and so Hal goes up and touches one of them there and he discovers that they're actually being turned into weapons and he gets absorbed into the one that he touched, which is the green lantern one. Um, and so when he arrives inside, it's like it's this whole green lantern planet and, uh, the green lanterns approach him and tell him that he is in sector John Stewart. So all of these other planets are going to have, um, little worlds inside of them based on Justice Leaguers, so that's kind of fun, actually. (laughs) Multiversity Teen Justice number three of five. We have Raven, who is male in this one, if you recall, at the site of the disappearance of the cult shelter housing unit. Uh, He senses something is wrong, uh, kind of wigs out, and the Teen Justice team has to arrive and snap him out of it. They go to the island of Mattel in the Bermuda Triangle, which is basically their form of the Savage Land at Marvel, it would seem, and uh, also the location of their Superwoman's Fortress of Tranquility, which I think I prefer over Solitude. Uh, Raven's demonic mother turns out to be what the church worships, which kind of makes sense, and on the Star Sapphire planet, we catch up with Aqua Girl, who has discovered that their version of how Jordan, uh, basically a CEO of anti-love Green Lantern Patrol, and he's unconscious. She intends to use his ring to get back to Earth, uh, and she ends up stepping into a pool of Green Lantern rings, hears some story, and then pops out the other side, which is where her team actually is. Um, And we learn that the Green Lantern Sinestra, because they're all gender-flipped, is actually the one who is behind all of this, apparently, so it's going to get connected in the next few issues. Sort of Azrael number one, this does spin out of the Dark Knights of the Soul stories um, from Batman... Batman... Urban Legends, that's the one. So what you need to know from Urban Legends, basically, is uh, Azrael of the Order of Saint Dumas, we know that, he meets a Knight Templar who has been killing those who were brought back by a synthesized version of the Lazarus Pit water, which brings people back to life. Uh, he tries to speak to her of how they are both zealots, it doesn't go so well. So... Now, issue one, sort of Azrael. Azrael is at a monastery now, trying to use focus on the saints uh, to overcome his Saint Dumas Order programming. The girl that he ends up saving uh, in this issue is a French woman named Brielle Arnier, who hears the voice of God in her head. God told her to come here and to find Jean-Paul Valet. Goes over his past a little bit, and then that night, assassins come for the French girl. Jean-Paul does his best to protect the monastery and is forced to let Azrael out to fight Vengeance, Bane's daughter, who has shown up here for some reason. She says she is here to take the girl back to the Knights Templar because she is dangerous. It turns out she is the angel Sabriel, and Azrael's sword uh, that he leaves with her wakes her and reminds her who she is. If I'm not mistaken... Sabriel is actually Lucifer before he falls from heaven. 
Anyway, uh, the vineyard number one, this family has an uber successful vineyard due to actually sacrificing other humans to Dionysus four times per year. Uh, <laughs> the husband who is in charge of the sacrifices, he gets in an accident. His wife turns out can't bring herself to kill these sacrifices. So her son starts doing it. Um, and then we hear from their daughter, who is somewhat estranged. So definitely just a kickoff issue here. Immortal X-Men number five. This is an Exodus point of view this time. I am turning out to be a massive fan of Exodus. Uh, Sinister in this issue we find out was taken by the Eternals. Apocalypse recruited Exodus during the Crusades, commanding him to kill a comrade. Cersei the Eternal was there protecting that comrade, but he beat her mentally because that's what the power stuff they have is, and then turned on Apocalypse. He then slept uh, under a spell for like a thousand years and was woken by Magneto. Now Exodus understands that it is hope. Hope Summers, who is the true mutant messiah. So that's his whole that's his whole shtick. Uh, in this issue, Exodus discovers that the council, the Quiet Council, is under attack psychically by the Unimind, which is, of course, the collected Eternals. Logan steps in just in time before they get some daggers to assassinate Hope, and he reports that Egg has been taken out already. They are trying to take out the Five to remove Resurrection. Emma takes Hope, Emma Frost takes Hope and Exodus to take down the Unimind. Exodus narrates that he is a knight again. This is a really cool sequence. I adored it. On his left hand, a diamond shield. This is Emma being protective over the children of Krakoa. In his right hand, his faith in Hope. They slice through the psychic tech of the Unimind, Exodus narrating that as low as they are, he has been lower. When Wanda took mutants down to only 200 strong, he went full nuts, letting self-destruction take him down. Then when Hope was born, he was given something to live for and to fight for again. When she returned, their world would be saved. Now she has returned, and she is their messiah, and his belief is his power. So the more that he believes in her, the stronger he is. She mimics his power so that the more he believes in her, the stronger he is, the stronger she is, the more stronger she is, the more he believes and just bounces back and forth eternally until they are this like so superpower they take down the Unimind without really trying. Um, and there's this really cool line here. He says, I will never kneel as long as she stands. I believe in the Hope Summer's supremacy. Thank you very much. Obviously, they win that battle. Uh, and then the Hive, who is like the seven or six big old monolithic creatures that uh, the Eternals have, they attack Krakoa. So Exodus, who calls himself now the Pope of the Church of Mutantdom, he's going to go and help take them down, which we do actually see uh, in Judgment Day number two, which is actually pretty good. We'll get to that in a minute. Demon Days, I'm oh, sorry, Demon Wars, Iron Samurai number one. This is Peach Momoko's first issue of her second, um, I guess you would say, series of her own retelling of Marvel stories. This is the story of Marco Yoshida continuing. Marco is depressed after the events of the last series and the fact that the world kind of just continues as if nothing had ever happened or changed. Also, she has been seeing strange creatures in apparent visions. The creatures are full, vibrant color, uh, and Marco's world is more or less just pale grays and tans. We see a Japanese Doctor Strange opening a portal before her, which she enters and becomes Princess Mariko to be greeted by a little Oami. They are at the Ikai, and she is faced by the Iron Samurai um, to prove who she is. And this 
a descendant of the Oni. He tests her and is thought by Birdman, that's kind of Captain America, sorta, who can see in her eyes who she truly is. She is a descendant of the great Oni Kigandoshi. Kigandoshi? That sounds right. Who protected this place that they're in now. Even when beheaded, they put his body in a shrine and he still protects them. But Mariko taking his jawbone, which uh, she uses as like a helmet, and using it for her armor ends up waking his body up and causing local earthquakes. Also, I think this Kigandoshi character is Carnage? I'm not sure. Uh, the fight here comes from Iron Samurai, who wants the head retrieved by Mariko so they regain their powers and can go out into the world. But the eagle guy, who fears that returning to the uh, returning the head will only bring trouble to them, um, he says they should keep things as they are uh, once they kind of calm down the body again. Uh, and the issue ends with Marco waking on a train, uh, running home past the Doctor Strange character, who is just silently kind of grinning and sweeping his front porch like just a simple old man. Let's talk Decease, War of the Undead Gods, as I want to say the third or the fourth iteration of Tom Taylor's Deceased series. This has all been continuing the story, and I believe War of the Undead Gods is going to be the finale. Um... In this issue, they have a cure for the anti-life equation, right? That's why everybody's a zombie, because Darkseid's anti-life equation happened. Uh, the cure is here now, and it allows the New League to fix all of the undead heroes, which obviously makes it quite hard for those who ended up killing their allies as they were zombified, um, because now they can't bring them back with the cure, so that's kind of a double-edged sword in a way. Supergirl, we get a little bit of flashback to her story because we actually haven't seen her in Deceased, and here we are learning why. Supergirl was sent to live with the new gods in this story, as opposed to the traditional version where she goes to live with Earth. When she arrives to uh, New Genesis, they're already all zombies, I'm pretty sure they just zombify her immediately. Meanwhile, Scott and Barda have decided, because they've been fixed, hell yeah, Scott and Barda decide to go home to New Genesis to see their son. He's probably already a zombie. No doubt going to run into all the zombie hordes. Hopefully they make it out. And Brainiac arrives at Earth. Uh, everybody's a little bit concerned until they find that he is pretty much decimated. He has come to warn the heroes that the gods are coming to spread the anti-life disease from New Genesis. No doubt, no good shall come of this, and I am so excited. Uh, something that's really awesome about Tom Taylor's DC series is he does not pull any punches. Um, he's really good at putting in characters who are fan favorites and then slaughtering them. <laughs> uh, so yeah, watch out for that if you pick up Deceased. <laughs> Astronaut Down number three, lovely indie comic here. Um still super fantastic. So 60% of the city has been, of Florida city has been lost uh, before the emergency barriers can finally contain the disease. In the other reality, the astronaut Douglas got his wife who is in that reality to understand what's going on. Even that him being there has killed her version of him. She even understands that, but he chooses not to transmit the cure because he hates his world, it turns out. The fact they denied science allowing the plague to destroy so much of their own population, including his wife, um, he doesn't want to save them. And this 
turns he he tells this to the other the other universe wife and she is completely enraged and starts attacking him um because saying that her true husband then died for nothing if you're just going to come here and live with this body instead of saving your world which is what it was meant to be uh, and he ends up injecting back into his own body um in his own reality and when he opens his eyes guess who's there but his dead wife <laughs> so clearly something got a little funky with your universe hopping, bud. There's something wrong with Patrick Todd number two, real briefly. Uh, Patrick's dad is apparently the guy who's going around beheading everybody that Patrick does his magic tricks on. Um, he is currently looking for Patrick. Patrick lost all the money he stole as well, so they're probably going to interact in the next issue. New Mutants 27 I finally caught up with. Young Ileana, stuck in limbo, accidentally creates the world of Alice in Wonderland, with the demons turning to the card soldiers and Velasco to the Red King, etc. The card demons take away the current Ileana's friends as captive, and she runs into her younger self. They summon Colossus, and as they fight Velasco, magic ends up getting fully powered up like Dark Child. And uh, she breaks the spell that the little version of her created. The little version of her uh, gives her the acorn of hope that she made from the Tree of Storm Spirit. Um, and that's kind of where we land here. Also, Madeline is not the villain in this arc at all, regardless of the solicitations and the covers. Not at all a villain. Parker Girls number one is in black and white. This was another indie comic. I'm honestly not sure what the plot here is, really. Um, in this issue, a woman cons a guy out of money that he stole um, after she doubles it for him. But it was good. It's There's just some other mystery going on. It's, it's kind of like spy noir, but not really. I don't know. I'll check it out some more, see where we go. The Deadliest Bouquet, number one. The sisters we meet here are Poppy, Rose, and Violet, and their mother has been killed. Uh, we learn that their father was abusive, so their mother had killed him when they were children and buried him in their backyard. Um, and now they're dealing with their mother's dead body and coming back together, apparently, for the first time in many years. Dark Crisis, Worlds Without Justice League, Green Lantern. So apparently these one-shots will be covering the little mini-worlds that Pariah has made themed after each of the Justice League members that he stole. This one takes place in John's world. We also get a hot girl story, I'm going to say hawk woman because that feels more appropriate, in this one as well, where Kendra Saunders dresses in full hawk regalia and explores a tomb. She finds a jar and drinks from it in order to end her immortality spell, and then it ends with Pariah like laughing. I, I, I apparently missed the joke. I really don't get why he was laughing. <laughs> Judgment Day number two is told alongside the stories of six human bystanders. The Avengers and the Eternals, who do not want war or to destroy the X-Men, are trying to build a new machine uh, designed after Tony Stark and taking up the body of their Avengers Mountain Sentinel. Uh, Sentinel? <laughs> um, no, not Sentinel. <laughs> Celestial. Um, he's basically trying to wake up the dreaming Celestial and kind of make it their own minion in a way. It's obviously not going to work. Uh, the Avengers, let's see. Okay, yeah, so we left off with the Hex attacking Krakoa in Immortal X-Men 5. It uh, turns out the Hex are all sisters, um, and since uh, since the the machine of the Eternals, it's the machine that is Earth, it's kind of complicated, um, it can resurrect the Eternals, but to resurrect the Eternals, 
in the eternal, the machine that is earth takes a human life in order to resurrect an eternal one. Um, really interesting concept. And that is the eternal secret. Nobody knows about that except for the Eternals. Meanwhile, half of their sect is over here mad at the X-Men for having resurrection that doesn't actually harm anybody. <laughs> so when that news gets out, they are going to be in big trouble. Um, but anyway, they're trying to build this new machine, right? So the Hex are fighting on Krakoa. They are a group of seven weird, like, eternal sisters. Um, one of them is a Minotaur. Um, her name is Sin, and she fights Exodus. And right as Exodus, like, explodes and takes her out with him, she, like, asks him, please don't. And then they all die. And so he's reborn without the memories of that battle. However, when Sin is brought back, um, she does remember the battle against Exodus. And you can bet your butt that she is not happy um, because she asked for mercy and he exploded. So he gets brought back through resurrection. Um, I swear every resurrection panel that's ever been drawn, they try to draw it as sexy as humanly possible, as mutantly possible. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's what's happening on Krakoa. <laughs> and, uh, we get a random dude in New York who drops dead to that sin, the Minotaur of the Eternals may live again. Uh, and then at the end of the issue, they successfully, they, as in the Avengers and the Eternals who are teamed up, successfully awaken Arishem, uh, in their own design. But Arishem is a judge. Arishem would just like to dream. Sorry, I'm getting the, the, the Arishem, the judge and the dreaming celestial mixed up. Um, this is Arishem, the judge. They somehow revive him, uh, but he is pissed off and decides that he is going to judge humanity both individually and collectively, decide if they deserve to survive. So that's cool. I guess that's why it's called Judgment Day. <laughs> uh, Samurai Doggy number one is the last one I'll talk about here. Uh, as a puppy, his mother, his mother was killed, his litter brothers stolen, and he was left for dead, but he was saved by a robot crow. Go figure. 20 years on now, uh, we see Samurai Doggy in this, like, animalistic Blade Runner backdrop, which is pretty cool. Uh, he ends up in a fight at an amusement park. I have no idea what's going on, but it's pretty cool, and I like samurai animal tales, so hey. Let's move into comic book polls. These are comics coming out August 17th for this week's comic book releases. We're going to talk about the solicitations for any new series, uh, but then for things that are ongoing or we've already heard a lot from, we'll just skip through the important details real quick. Starting with Heart Eyes number one. This is from Vault Comics by Dennis Hopeless Hallam, Victor Ibanez, and Addison Duke. Sanity-eating monsters ended humanity. The unlucky few who survived now hide in the cracks of a broken world. And yet somehow, beneath the graveyard that used to be San Antonio, Rico met Lupe, the girl of his dreams. But how did she get there, and why is she smiling? No one survives out in the street. No one smiles where the monsters lurk. This is got covers by Victor Al Ilbanez, Michael Dialinus, Albert Montes, Chris Burnham, and three covers from Jenny Frizen. Batman One Bad Day, The Riddler is obviously a DC book. It's a one-shot by Tom King with art by Mitch Gerrids. Let's see, skipping the intro. Da, da, da. Bat the Riddler has killed a man in broad daylight for seemingly no reason, but there's always a reason. The Riddler is always playing a game 
there are always rules. Batman will reach his wit's end trying to figure out the Riddler's true motivation in this epic psychological thriller. This is not to be missed. Lady Hell number one comes from Dynamite Comics by Eric Burnham and Zengis Tasbolatov. 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 It says... She is very is the very personification of death, or at least she was. When we last saw Lady Hell, she was paying the price for messing with the half-demon Purgatory. Now deposed, Lady Hell must find a way to seize back her throne. There's just one problem. She no longer has the power to do much more than exist. Meanwhile, what happens to the world when death is no longer a fact of life? It ain't pretty. Plus, where Lady Hell goes, can Lady Demon be far to follow? This one has covers by Lucio Perillo, Daniel Main, Mike Mall, Guibo Vignont, a cosplay variant, Joyce Chin, Ivan Tao, and Jay Ferguson. True Cult number one has V's where the U's would be. This is from IDW by Scott Brian Wilson and Liana Kangas. It says Marty Tarantella? tarantula has been flipping burgers for 15 years he has no kids no hobbies no love interests and essentially no life but what he does have is plain is a plan to change everything years of watching the daily rhythms of the neighboring stores has given marty the idea for a perfect heist but when he accidentally steals a supernatural weapon from a cult full of violent lunatics the resulting satanic panic will be way above his minimum wage pay grade Nothing can prepare you for the coming of True Cult, a deliciously horrifying and hilarious new story from Scott Brian Wilson and Liana Kangas. It has covers by Maria LaVey and Fabian Lalay. Axe, or AXE, still haven't figured that one out. Death to the Mutants, number one of three. This is by Kieran Gillen and Guyu Villanova. I apologize for brutalizing your name, with covers by Assad Ribic and a variant cover by Lionel Francis Yu. The mutants are deviants. Eternals are coded to correct excess deviation. The mutants are eternal, Mars colonizers, ever spreading. Eternals know what they should do. Our heroes don't want to, but can they resist the murderous designs coded into their body as surely as any sentinel? And if they can't, can anyone survive the coming judgment? Unprepped number one from Antarctic Press is by Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon with art by Marlin Shoup. You may think you're ready for the apocalypse, but even after lockdown plagues, town-raising natural disasters, and an ever-present threat of rogue nations going nuclear, the average Joe isn't, just isn't prepared for a total global disaster. Witness mankind's trans transition from the digital age to the stone age in the blink of an eye, and the only light comes from an angry sun setting on two families struggling to survive. Uh, we have Daredevil number two by Anne Nocenti and Chip Zartsky because this is issue 650 legacy numbering. We have art by Chip Zartsky, Scott Hanna, Klaus Jensen, Chris Samney, John Romita Jr., Alex Maliev, Paul Azaceta, Mike Hawthorne, Phil Noto, Raphael Della Torre, and Marco Cicchetto. With that list, you wouldn't think there are any female artists in the industry. Jesus. Variants by Gary Frank, Kale New, Bill Sinkovich, and A. Pete Woods scroll variant. Not a single woman besides Anne Nascenti. Jesus, guys. Flavor Girls number two of three is one that I am thoroughly excited for, so I will read you to the solicit even though it's a number two. Sarah is going out of this world as the newest member of the Flavor Girls. At an extra planner location called the Temple, Sarah and her fellow Flavor Girls home their unique powers with Master Himoku. Sorry, Himiku. Himiko? As an encroaching threat looms ever closer. This is by uh, Loic Locatelli Corn 
Kornsky, I'm so sorry, uh, from Boom Studios. Seven Sons, number three, is another fantastic one, so we'll read that. In issue three, Epp's death at the hands of Allah's Watchmen sets Delph on a path to uncover the hidden origins of the Church of the Seven. God, I love this one. This is by Robert Windham and Kevin Mao, with art and covers by Jay Lee. Immortal Red Sonia, number five. Oh, I skipped one. Bloodstained Teeth, number five, is from Image Comics. I'm not sure it's a final issue, but this is the <laughs> Christian Ward Project with Patrick Reynolds on art. Now, Immortal Red Sonia, number five, by Dan Abnett. Luca Colandrea and Amelia Pina is from Dynamite Comics with covers by David Nakayama, Ju Gyun Yoon, Joseph Michael Linzer, and Lee Ri Lee with a cosplay cover as well. Strange number five. I am still quite torn about it. You can check out the last, <laughs> the last episode that I posted to see why. It says, Back from the dead. Dead heroes and villains alive have been Oh, alike have been reanimated as ghoulish versions of their past selves. Now it's up to Strange and the Harvest Men to make sure these dead supers stay dead. Are they talking when they say Strange? They mean Clea. Why are they just call her Clea? Uh, but what happens when the next reanimated hero is Clea's dead husband, Stephen Strange? It's, it's not actually him. That's I, I mean I, I thought we knew that. It's by Jed McKay with Marcelo Fiera, Roberto Poggi, and Javier Tar. Taglia. I'm so sorry. Harley Quinn number 20. We have Task Force Task Force XX Chapter 3. This is by Stephanie Phillips and Georges Duarte with Simon, oh sorry, Simone Buonfantino. Covers by Carla Cohen, Derek Chu, Ryan Sook, homage variant, Jay Anacleto, and John Boy Myers. Last two here are New Mutants number 28 and Captain Marvel number 40, both from Marvel. New Mutants 28 is by Vita Ayala and Rod Reese. Oh, sorry, Vira Yala, uh, yeah, with art by Rod Reese and Jan Dursima, or possibly Yan, I'm not sure, uh, with covers by Lionel Franciliu and no variants, actually. It says, the end of an era in more ways than one. The time has come for magic to conquer her demons. Will Ileana be able to contend with manifestations of her trauma and save her friends in the process? And if Madeline does gain the throne, can the Goblin Queen contain the fiery madness of Limbo? Or will her old inclinations towards chaos resurface, bringing Kokoa and the rest of the world to their knees? Well, we already know that she's going to be in that stupid Spider-Man event later this year, so yes, it does seem that she's going to become the ruler of Limbo, but not sure beyond that. Um, the next issue is going to pivot to Gabby, Karma, Dakin, and James Proudstar, written by guest writer Danny Lore. And then issue 30 after that is the New Mutants Team 30th Anniversary Special. Captain Marvel number 30, Trials Part 3, The Hammer or the Nail. Captain Marvel's magical tribunal doubles down as Carol struggles to break free of her prison using only what she came with, namely herself. But if Earth's mightiest hero can't solve this puzzle, she'll be Captain Marvel no more, which was maybe the master plan all along. This is Legacy number 174. Um... And we're also getting a uh, binary in this one, hopefully. By Kelly Thompson and Alvera Lopez, we have a Predator variant by Carrie Nord, and only one more issue in this arc. I don't know if you can hear the cat purring. 
He's in my lap now. Anyway, moving on to Harley Quinn Season 3, Episodes 4 and 5. Starting off with, and these are going to be a little bit briefer, so I apologize if you're hoping for more. Uh, episode 4 was a thief, a mole, and an orgy, which is pretty much exactly what we get. So Ivy gets uh, Frank the plant to make the uh, hormones or whatever it is that she needs to terraform Gotham, but then he gets kidnapped. And the problem is Harley had already taken out the cameras because they're at Catwoman's house and Ivy told her Catwoman was watching her on the cameras and telling her what she can and cannot do in her house. But in reality, it was Ivy because Ivy was annoyed by Harley. Um, and so she was making rules of her own for Harley and blaming them on them being at Catwoman's house, Catwoman's rules. So looking for Frank, they end up at the Court of Owls, which is pretty hilarious, actually, uh, who sacrifice in this uh, fake goat, because uh, I guess their vegan members were complaining about real goats, uh, which is hilarious. So they still sacrifice the fake goat, uh, and they finally see Catwoman is there, Bruce is there, obviously, and Gordon is there, uh, really the opposite of killing it. He breaks his own mask, somehow gets Bruce Wayne to donate to his campaign. It's actually quite impressive. And then there's an orgy, which was honestly quite disturbing. Um, <laughs> uh, and Harley, she ends up learning Ivy's past with Catwoman. They come to terms. Frank is still missing. Okay. Now, season three, episode five was called It's a Swamp Thing. Um, basically, Ivy has been trying to access the green to find out where her little Frank buddy has been um, taken to. And then she has to admit to herself finally that Harley is not the problem distracting her. She just is having issues connecting with the green. So they go to find Swamp Thing because he's obviously, you know, the king of the green, not, not literally, but you know, uh, so he can help her is the theory. It turns out though, he is a total hippie. He's got like the man bun and everything. It's hilarious. Uh, Nora Frost, uh, got tied up to going with them, which is funny too. And she is just like this hot mess because she spent 25 years on ice. Right. And now she's like making up for it. It's awesome. I love it. Um, and Swamp Thing does kind of help, uh, when, I think it's him who sees the little buddy, who sees Frank. He sees that he's at Bruce Wayne's house. He sees it somewhere, but we we see that he's at Bruce Wayne's house. Um, because Batman knows that Ivy did something to Frank, but he's not sure what, so he is going to find out. And we'll get the next episode, episode six, this Thursday, to be covered on next week's episode. What I have been waiting for, and possibly you as well, the She-Hulk pre-episode. Prepping for She-Hulk Attorney at Law, which is starting this Thursday, the 18th on Disney+. The show's head writer is Jessica Gao, best known for her Emmy-winning Rick and Morty episode, Pickle Rick. And Kat Koiro, director of episodes of Modern Family and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, is in charge of several of the episodes as well. And this will be wrapping up Phase 4, alongside Wakanda Forever coming out in November. So we're going to go over things that we know, things that we don't know, and things that we are wondering about. So starting off with the known um, characters and whatnot who appear here. So Porcupine, um, whatever the therapy class that Jen is going to be in for superheroes or capes or villains or whatever, um, this is where she's going to see a lot of these characters, including Porcupine. His first appearance was Tales to Astonish number 48. Um, most recently, as far as I know in the comics, he has actually been uh, the almost fiancé of Jessica Drew, a.k.a. 
Spider-Woman. Um, I don't think we're going to see Jessica Drew in this. I don't think it's going to have any connection to Jessica Drew. Um, but that is definitely Porcupine. That is definitely the same guy. Basically what happens is Jessica um, wants to have a baby, but doesn't want the father involved or whatever. So she gets um, a sperm donor. And that's that's going to come up at some point in comics. They're going to have to reveal who the father is at some point. But um, And then she ends up, I don't remember how, but she ends up teaming up with Porcupine and um, what's his name from the Daily Bugle. And um, they, she has her baby and then she ends up dating Porcupine after that. And then recently, in the most recent series, uh, which was great and foreshortened, unfortunately, he broke up with her because he was going to propose, but she just like, uh, no. <laughs> I don't actually, I don't remember if she said no or if he just decided not to propose because he could just tell that he wasn't really an important part of her life anymore, to be honest. He didn't fit anymore, so I didn't like them dating anyway. I digress. <laughs> We also know that Man Bull will be appearing in the same context. Uh, he first appeared in Daredevil Volume 1, number 78. So these are both some fairly older characters. Actually, kind of all are. Um, not really anything interesting to say about Man Bull. He's just a Man Bull. <laughs> we have El Aguila, who uh, first appeared. I probably said that wrong as well. Uh, first appeared in Power Man and Iron Fist number 58. Uh, he will also be in that group, it would appear. Frogman, we are not sure what the context of his character is going to appear yet, but we know he's going to be in it. We've seen him in the trailer. He is a hero who is the son of Leapfrog, who is a villain. <laughs> uh, he's pretty ridiculous, but Frogman, there he is. We're also going to see the Wrecking Crew. Um, in the trailer, they don't look too impressive. I have a theory that when She-Hulk first beats them, she will re-encounter them sometime down the line, um, having been scientifically advanced somehow, um, pumped up with weapons or muscles or something like that, you know. Uh, I don't think that we're just going to see them beat and that's it. Um, also, some people have noticed that the tools the Wrecking Crew uses in the trailer, apparently, um, they kind of have a similar glow to them as the Bengals do in Ms. Marvel. So um, some people are kind of theorizing maybe that's all connected. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Obviously, Tatiana Maslany is Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk. Uh, she will be starring in it, so she will, of course, be in all nine episodes. Mark Ruffalo is playing Bruce Banner once again. He will also be in all nine episodes, as will Tim Roth's Emil Blonsky, a.k.a. Abomination. Um, he was first seen in 2008's The Incredible Hulk movie, which is technically canon, and he returned last year after many rumors of him still kind of being in and out of the universe still, the, the, the MCU universe. Marvel Cinematic Universe universe. <laughs> um, anyway, he, he showed back up in Shang-Chi last year um, very briefly alongside Wong, um, and it's causing some people to question if this is going to end up connected to the Thunderbolts. Um, I, for reasons that are quite sad, uh, the actor passed away. We were not going to have, unless they recast him, which I don't think they will, General Thaddeus Ross playing, um, Thunderbolt Ross, aka eventually Red Hulk, aka a leader of the Thunderbolts, kind of more or less. Um, so 
uh, maybe he could, maybe Abomination will be one. I actually don't know if Abomination has been a member of the Thunderbolts aside from that anyway. Um, he's not exactly on my radar as far as comic characters go, usually. Um, but anyway, Tim Roth, I know I've mentioned it before, fantastic actor. Um, definitely check out Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead if you are a fan of him, uh, as well as uh, Gary Oldman, which is also in that. Anyway, uh, we have Benedict Wong returning as Wong. Again, we last saw him in Shang-Chi um, last year. He is going to be in all nine episodes, as is Titania, played by Jamila Jamil. Uh, I still believe that Titania is going to be a setup of some kind, PR stunt, something like that, at least in a portion of the show. Um, it's uh, nine episodes for the two of them. It'll be, I don't know, I don't, maybe, it could just be very brief appearances in some of the episodes. It doesn't mean that there are going to be main characters in all nine episodes. We have Ginger Gonzaga as the mysterious Nikki Ramos. I say mysterious because we have yet to figure out who her comic counterpart is. And it would be kind of stupid, let's be honest, for them to create a best friend, an original character as Jen's best friend instead of using somebody from the comics. That would be dumb. But we'll see. Uh, what well, doesn't make it any less dumb if that's what they do. <laughs> we also have Renee Elise Goldsberry, who is playing Mallory Book. Now, what's interesting about this is she has been marketed as one of the kind of important, more important coworker characters for Jen, but she's only she's only um, credited for having one episode appearance. So. Clearly not. Um, it's also odd that they're doing that only one appearance of her because she is in the current She-Hulk comics as well. Uh, she's She-Hulk's boss currently, so go figure. Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock, aka Daredevil, is also listed for all nine episodes, but again, doesn't mean that he is one of the main characters in every nine episodes, every one of them. Um, he just appears in all nine of them. We are going to see him, of course, in the red and yellow suit. It does not look like a wrestling suit in the slightest, which is what the original red and yellow comic design was supposed to be homage to. So I'm very curious if they're going to bother kind of explaining the color change in that sense, or if they're going to give it some other explanation. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're going to say, oh yeah, red and gold was his dad's boxing colors, so that's why he chose this. doesn't really look like a boxing outfit in the slightest the way the comic book one did because he had the underwear and stuff um but but the colors could still work as a light homage to his father maybe also <clears throat> director kat coriro uh she had a statement on daredevil's role in the show she said to watch matt murdoch and jennifer walter's Match wits is something I think people are going to love. Charlie and Tatiana have great chemistry. It's got the tone of Howard of a Howard Hawks movie. No idea who that is, if I'm being honest, but um, I'm excited to see humorous Matt Murdock slash Daredevil, because uh, we haven't necessarily gotten that in any large amount. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see that, because, believe it or not, there are funny moments in Daredevil comics. Additionally, we know we have Steve Coulter as Hold Holden Holloway. He is one of the names on the law firm that, uh, one of the partners of the law firm that Jen works for. 
What's interesting about his character, um, as we're going to be seeing him in the MCU, is according to the trailer, it is Holden Holloway who wants to hire her specifically as She-Hulk to take on superhero clientele and be the face of their superhero side of their clientele. Um, in the comics, he hires her and the understanding that she will not complicate things as She-Hulk and she will be Jen. Um, so that's actually very interesting that they've done a complete 180 on his character there. Um, additionally, the line in the trailer about how he doesn't seem to um, care that she has a conflict of interest he clearly, this Holden Holloway, clearly plays very loosey-goosey uh, with his lawyer work entirely. So that kind of stems into why I think Titania might be a PR move, um, because he seems very much of the mindset of, if we get publicity for it, that can only be a good thing. We also have Rise Corio of Donnie Blaze. I'm not actually sure who that is, uh, but more importantly, Drew Matthews as Dennis Buck Bukowski. Now, this one is interesting. Buck is from the Savage She-Hulk series. He is one of the main characters who would belittle Jen and make her feel like she was not worthy of her role as an attorney in their office, simply because she is a female. Um, he is condescending. He is sexist, um, and she is a little spitfire constantly in his face. Uh, kind of pushing back to all of that. So um, I'm curious how they're going to do Buck in this. Also, um, there's a little bit of a complication in the first or second issue of the Savage She-Hulk. I think it was issue two. Um, Jennifer's canon best friend, uh, whose name I don't have, I don't recall at the moment, um, actually dies in a car accident while she's driving Jen's car because Holden Holloway, uh, it was basically something like Holden Holloway was trying to trick She-Hulk and ends up accidentally getting into a car accident because the brakes were cut by this other guy. And lo and behold, uh, what ends up happening is, um, I keep saying Holden Holloway, that's not right, Buck. Buck. <laughs> Um, Buck ends up with this horrible guilty conscience for basically the rest of his life because he more or less was the reason why Jen's best friend dies in a fiery inferno <laughs> in a car accident. Um, even though that was never like legally made his fault, it, it was his fault 100%. Um, so he, get, he does get a little bit of a character change like towards the She-Hulk character after that because he obviously doesn't know that she's Jen. Um, uh, he has a little bit of a, a change there, but he's still an asshole. Now, things that we don't know from the series, I'm going to repeat this probably several times. Who is Nikki? My current theory is obviously Nikki, uh, not obviously, but um, I've said it a bunch of times before, Nikki is a hallucination. <laughs> um, I have a lot of reasons why. I've talked it to death, I think, before, but basically, I just feel like there's got to be something that's like a big reveal twist that has specifically to do with Jen. Um, not necessarily her transitioning into She-Hulk, not her family, not Bruce, not her job. No, something with her is going to be revealed. And for some reason, I'm just stuck on that thing of Nikki is not real. Um, it kind of ties into the fourth wall breaking thing because 
I mean, potentially she could be talking to Nikki instead of the audience. But anyway, I that's just my theory. Um, but the spaceship, we know in the most recent trailer, there was a spaceship that was shown. That is a spaceship from Sakaar. We saw that in Ragnarok um, when Thor and Bruce and everybody are on Sakaar. Those are the ships of uh, Sakaar, basically, the planet. Uh, now, that is relevant because in the comics, we encounter the planet of Sakaar when uh, the Hulk is thrown, thrown, but basically thrown out of Earth. Um, he's, like, sedated and sent off into space randomly by the Illuminati, who keep that a secret, and it's, like, it's this terrible thing. Um, and they also had a bomb in the spaceship in case he tried to get back to Earth, they would just blow him up. Right, sure, guys. So he winds up on Sakaar, he does the whole gladiator thing, it's, they took a lot of that for the, um, World War Hulk, sorry, that's World War Hulk, uh, for the Ragnarok, uh, movie, but in the comic version, um, when, when he kind of ends up, uh, he kind of ends up ruling Sakaar, I guess is what you would say, um, and he is ruling alongside one of his allies from the gladiator battle stuff, uh, who she, she became an ally, and her name is Saira. Um, it's C-A-I-E-R-A. So if they put her in the show, they're definitely going to change her name. Um, but she, uh, it's a really sad thing. She ends up dying in this explosion as well as most of the population of the planet, I'm pretty sure. Um, and he obviously doesn't because he's Hulk. Um, but then, and I think she was pregnant as well, which was made it even worse. Um, but then, you know, further down the line in the comics, we meet... Scar, S-K-R, S-K-A-A-R, um, who is from an alternate reality where, uh, that bomb did not go off and destroy Sierra, um, and he comes to Earth and meets and blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm not really sure if it's, if he's still canon or not in the comics. It's, it's a little weird. I, I honestly am not sure, but, um, he's the son of Hulk. And he was born on Sakaar. So um, a spaceship from Sakaar showing up. People are kind of making jokes that uh, Sarah is looking for um, potentially decades of missing child support. <laughs> now, we also don't know how Bruce Banner's arm gets fixed. Remember the last time we saw him, even up to the... Um, the, the Shang-Chi end credit scene, the Shang-Chi end credit scene there where we see him and he looks kind of weird and gray and tired, but he still has his arm in a sling. Uh, just like the last time we saw him as Hulk, his arm wasn't healing any faster or anything as Hulk, as far as we know. Um, one thing I want to know about this, okay, before I get into that, so in the trailer we see that he, um, he's healed at some point on the island in Mexico the big clap, the all that stuff, he's healed. Perfectly normal arms. Um, what I want to know is if that's actually real. Um, we obviously want to know when or how his arm ends up getting fixed. Um, but it's also potential that the magic of trailer editing, you know, who knows if that's actually legitimate that his arm is fixed. Obviously that scene with the big clap wouldn't be able to be a thing if it's not. And I think people would really love to see that in the show, not just the trailer. One theory I've seen is that he does heal faster in Hulk form, but that honestly seems like kind of a weak excuse or explanation, especially after we saw him in Shang-Chi with the wound still. Um, but on that note, 
kind of, um, will we see another version of Bruce Banner's Hulk, such as Joe Fix-It? Um, it was made canon in uh, just the last couple of years that it was actually Joe Fix-It who did the blood transfusion from Bruce Banner to Jennifer um, when she was uh, when she had been shot by Trask's agents in Savage She-Hulk number one. That was not Bruce Banner, who was doing the process, that was Joe Fix-It. Bruce Banner couldn't mentally handle it, so the person who could inside his brain came out, and that would be Joe. Um, I would be super stoked to see something similar happen in the comics, to be honest. I'm sorry, sorry, it happened in the show, to be honest. Uh, but going off of that again a little bit, we don't know when the show takes place. Theories pretty much have been guessing everything from before, during, and after the blip. Um, personally, I think right after Shang-Chi makes the most sense to me. It doesn't really... Uh, the one thing that's kind of questionable there is Bruce looks pretty rough in the, like, gray area of his hair. Um, and then when we're seeing him in the Chi-Hulk trailer, he doesn't. Um, but if you're going by his arm, his arm would have had to heal well after we saw him in the Shang-Chi trailer. Does he start dyeing his hair? Does he just, like, feel a lot better about life? And so he's looking better? Like, I don't know. That's the only thing that I'm a little bit confused about still. Um, because the only other alternative I can think of is would be, oh, it had to have happened before he hurt his arm. Well, that would have been, um, gee. Yeah, that would have been in, like, the five years, right? That This could be taken during the blip. Oh, was my cat again. Um... I don't know. It's it, it could pretty much be anything, any any time. But but if it is before, if it's during the blip, then why haven't we seen her since then? Is it because she gets sent off into space or something? I don't know. There's so much that it could be, honestly. Now there are four actors who are in this show who we do not know their characters. The characters have been undisclosed as of yet. Uh, two of them are only in one episode. That is John Bass and Nicholas Carrillo. Carrillo. I definitely brutalized that name. Um, I have a theory about John Bass. It's possible he could be Zapper. Zapper is uh, the kind of like boy next door. He was a white dude with a brown afro. Um, really odd character. He was, and he had a mustache, I think, too. Um, but he, she always called him the kid next door. And then he like had this crush on her and was always trying to date her and like cozy up to her and watch movies at her house and stuff. And and she was like, oh, Zapper, you're such a good friend. Was <laughs> he ends up being a hematologist down the line. But anyway, John Bass would perfectly fit that role, in my opinion. Um, then you also have Josh Segarra, who is going to be in all nine episodes. His role has yet to be announced. And Griffin Matthews, who's going to be in eight episodes. His role has also yet to be announced. Um Based on the cast that we know, there are, as some people have noted, not really any love interests for Jen. Um, uh, I don't think she ever really dated Matt Murdock. I don't think she ever dated Matt Murdock, actually. Um, Holden Holloway obviously was her boss. I don't know who. Book obviously not. Enemy uh, Abomination obviously not. Bruce Banner obviously not. Porcupine Manbull Frogman nope. Wrecking Crew nope. Like no. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that, that 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 leaves us with 
if she's going to have a romantic interest, he's going to be one of these two dudes, Josh Segarra or Griffin Matthews. Um, and so then you have to think, oh, romantic interest from the comics. Who could that be? I know some people um, would like that to be Jack of Hearts. He's made a recent resurgence in the comics. I don't think it's the real Jack of Hearts. We have yet to find that out. It's from the current She-Hulk series. Um, you could do uh, Jonah or is it John? Yeah, John Jameson, Jonah Jameson's son, J. Jonah Jameson's son, uh, who is an astronaut as well as, um, actually, you know, Griffin Cigar would do that really well. I just totally combined their names. It's Josh Cigar and Griffin Matthews. <laughs> Josh Cigar, I think, would do uh, uh, John Jameson really well, because John Jameson is an astronaut who ends up being Wolfman and also this other crazy thing. He's also, uh, chron chronologically, the first of she well Jen's love interests that she ever meets. She meets him actually in the same issue that she meets Patsy Walker's Hellcat. Fun fact. Um, as for Griffin Matthews, I'm thinking he's going to be another hero character. Um, if Josh Cigar is going to be like a boyfriend, Griffin Matthews, I feel like he's going to be a like a hero character. I don't know. Um, but the fact that those two guys are going to be in most, if not all, the episodes and have had a very hush hush on what their roles are going to be makes me very much think it's relevant as heck. Now that leaves us with the segment what we are wondering about if these things are going to be in the show. Um, starting with the leader. I know back in 2020, which was a good while ago of now, there were rumors that the leader may actually be showing up in this show. Um, he is kind of a major villain for She-Hulk, um, especially kind of, well, it kind of looks depends on what point in your history you're looking at. He has been a major a Hulk villain, obviously, but he's he's popped in and out of She-Hulk history here and there. Um, he was in the immortal She-Hulk one-shot, being very terrifying and threatening, and he was also in the Mariko Tamaki series, trying to take advantage of her and her mental state there as well. Um, what he would be doing in the MCU, nothing good, I'm sure, um, but I would be very curious if they keep the very large-headed design that he has in the comics. Now, Punisher, we talked about that in the news segment. It is rumored that he is going to be showing up at some point in this show. Um, I'd be super down with that. Obviously, I'd love to see all of the formerly Netflix Marvel characters show up in the official MCU uh, because they all did a great job. I'm not talking about Iron Fist, though. Um, again, we wonder, who the shit is Nikki? <laughs> Um, I'm just, I, I just don't, I cannot make myself believe that they have created an original character to be Jen's best friend when she has so many friends from the comics that you could utilize. I just can't, that doesn't make no sense to me. There's also a rumor that Jason Segal could be joining the cast, possibly playing Ben Grimm of the Fantastic Four. Now, this doesn't have to be the thing. This could just be straight Ben Grimm. Because remember, before he is the thing, he is just Ben Grimm, the human science dude, astronaut or whatever. Um, and so if he does show up, great, then you're teasing for Fantastic Four for the first time. I kind of always preferred that the Fantastic Four would show up all together the first time that we see them, and they would be already you know, several years down the line having had their powers. But if we're going to be seeing Ben Grimm, potentially they would be kind of a new entity when they pop up in the MCU, the Fantastic Four. So who knows? Uh, now, Jacinda, she is a scroll princess kind of, she's a scroll. Um, she's the daughter of the super scroll. Um, 
and she is also a kind of key player in Secret Invasion for the comics, and that is something that we know now, confirmed, is going to be coming up um, in Phase 5 for the MCU. We're going to have Secret Invasion premiering in the spring of 2023. Jacinda, uh, and why she's relevant with She-Hulk, is because when She-Hulk loses her, um, her bar establishment, her, um, uh, she, she is disbarred, there we go, She-Hulk is disbarred for reasons, and she becomes a bounty hunter then, um, bail bonds hunter downer, bounty hunter, you know, um, and Jacinda, the scroll, ends up being her partner. Uh, so Jacinda would dress up as Jen, and they would go and she would fight them, and people would be like, oh yeah, we beat She-Hulk before she could turn into She-Hulk, and then actual She-Hulk would show up. Um, but anyway, um, so that's what Jacinda and She-Hulk's relationship is. They actually became very good friends. And then, um, that was when Jen was a bounty hunter, so if we see Jen disbarred, we could see her as a bounty hunter. I mean, we could see her as a bounty hunter anyway, really. And then at one point, she is also a magistry for the Living Tribunal. It's a whole other thing I'll explain when I get into the uh, the She-Hulk podcast special later this week. Um, she is not magistry for the Living Tribunal for very long, but the Living Tribunal has been teased in the MCU a number of times here, so I would not be surprised if they get pulled in due to that connection to Jen in the comics. Um, I have here written Mrs. Jameson. That is a reference to John Jameson, the astronaut turned man-wolf eventually, um, being one of her long-term comic romances alongside Wyatt Wingfoot, um, or relationships, I should say. It hasn't always been a romance, um, but, but definitely uh, between uh, John Jameson and Wyatt Wingfoot, you have two of her longest running romances. So um, that's why I'm questioning if there will be a kind of Mrs. Jameson thing. And on the note of the Mrs. Jameson event, Eros, will we see Eros? Yes, she does have a uh, one night stand with Eros in the comics. However, when she marries John Jameson, he is in love with her and she is under a spell that Eros put on her to make her in love with John Jameson in return. Um, when that is discovered, uh, the spell is removed and she annuls their marriage because obviously she does not love this man. Quite sad because he actually is very much in love with her and believed her to be the same with him. So that's pretty sad. Um, so Eros, the various reasons that he could come in here and not just to be a plaything for her. Um, I've already kind of gone over the potentiality of romantic interests. I would personally love to see Wyatt Wingfoot show up in this show in some um, uh, in some format. <laughs> uh, Wyatt Wingfoot has a character who is much older than She-Hulk is. He ran with the Fantastic Four. Um, he's been friend to many a superhero, um, and it has been pretty much a lifelong on-again, off-again romance with Jennifer Walters and her She-Hulk persona. At one point, they were even engaged in the She-Hulk she -Hulk ceremony uh, twofer. They were even engaged. They ended up not getting married, but they were going to 100% get married. Um, other people who could show up, Jessica Jones, again, I am 
100% pro the formerly Netflix Marvel characters making an, an actors making an appearance here. Also, Kristen Ritter has been just on top of things, teasing the heck out of fans with uh, what could be nothing, honestly, but could also be her giving little actual teases to her reappearance at some point in the MCU. And yes, during the uh, previous episodes, I talked about Echo Show rumors where it could be Daredevil looking for Jessica Jones. Um, in that case, we probably wouldn't see her until that point. Moon Knight is another character who is, uh, he's got a pretty decent history with She-Hulk as well, not a romantic one, um, but they have been teammates off and on and through the years as well as allies pretty much eternally. <laughs> um, he obviously just had his own MCU show uh, that was fairly well received and people are excited for a potential second season. Um, is it possible that he could show up here as needing just as just uh, needing Jessica, needing Jennifer to um, uh, be his lawyer? <laughs> Um, who knows? And finally, uh, there is a rumor that has not really anything substantial behind it that Happy Hogan might actually be showing up to be a client of Jen's as well. Um, he, at this point in the MCU, theoretically has had all of his knowledge of Peter Parker's Spider-Man wiped from him, so he doesn't have any of that, but he still does have the connection to Iron Man. Um, so I wouldn't mind seeing him, for sure, even though it would be a little bit bittersweet because he's not exactly the same happy as he would be with those memories. And just on the note of Wyatt Wingfoot for a moment, Wyatt Wingfoot is an Indigenous American character. Um, he actually becomes the chief of his clan at one point. Um, so I very much hope that none of these four characters that or actors who do not have roles announced yet um, are Wyatt because none of them are Native or indigenous, and I think that would be a horrifying choice to make, honestly, with a character of his uh, kind of cultural importance to his own society. Um, that would be major slap in the face to, to to Native Americans for sure. But if you would like to hear more about the um, She-Hulk show, the character of She-Hulk, her comic history, I have a very extensive and detailed podcast special coming out at the end of this week. I might not make it out before the show comes, but it will be before episode two, 100% certain about that, um, because I have about 98% of it finished right now, which is super exciting. I've been working on it for months. I have been doing so much comic reading and so much research. Um, it's pretty crazy, <laughs> but I'm excited to finally see the fruits of my efforts uh, in a recordable podcast, and hopefully you will all enjoy it very much, because it is like, I would say 9.999 times out of 10, it's going to cover everything that you could possibly want to know about Jennifer Walters, aka She-Hulk. So check that out later this week. Um, make sure you don't miss the She-Hulk premiere this Thursday. Otherwise, we there are I Am Groot episodes. We're going to have uh, Harley Quinn episodes again Thursday. Um, and we'll talk about all of that and more on next week's episode 76. It's still pretty hot out here as we get into mid to late August. The summer sun bears down and dehydrates the flesh. Wow, that was weird and dramatic. Drink water is my point. <laughs> have a good week. Peace.